Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Cue It Up Network, uh, MN Pool Bootcamp collaborative podcast. We've got Demetrius Gelatis here with Jesse Engel. Jesse, hey. how are you doing? Oh, pretty good. Good to be back again. Excellent. Excellent. Um, what have you been up to uh, since our last pod? Anything uh, interesting for the listeners? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know what's really interesting these days, but uh, kind of just doing my own thing, continue to run my business and uh, hang out with my kid when I get him. And then uh, doing a lot of remodeling on the house too. Been staying pretty busy with that. But aside from that, man, just uh, trying to stay out of the cold. Not a huge fan of that. So kind of go into uh, isolation this time of year. So. Ooh. All right. All right. What about you? Well, I uh, I just had a fun trip to South Dakota. Uh, it was not a tournament. I actually, um, well, there's a, there's a, a a young gentleman out there who's been playing some pretty pretty darn good pool, and um, he and his father actually uh, came and took one of my three day boot camps uh, during the summertime, and it went really really well. And um, anyway, I talked to his father and I wanted to do some continued training with his son, but it's really hard. You know, it's it's the hardest part was you know his dad can't bring his son to me very easily because you know to do that too often anyways logistically challenging and i can't have his son come out by himself because he's you know he's a minor and it's not really what i want to do three days so i'm like what if i came to you so anyway it worked out to where i was able to go out to south dakota and uh and and train with his son for a few extra days and uh it was a heck of a fun trip man and um tell you what he hits him good man you know he strikes the balls really well and i wanted to talk to you about this like He's 13, you know, he, he can't beat me. You know, he might take a set off me here and there, but like, he's not, he's not top level yet, but I'll tell you, Jesse, he strikes the balls like a top level player. And this is the thing that I find interesting. is like, there's a certain thing when you watch different players shoot where I think that I pocket the balls as well as he does just because of my experience and how long I've played. But when I watch how he shoots, there's something really, really crisp where between how he sights the ball and how he steps into the shot and how he delivers his stroke, I don't really know where this focus comes from, but it seems like it seems like when I shoot, it's like the focus is just a little blurry somewhere where it's like I make my balls because there's a margin of error and you can hit the pocket slightly different spots and the ball still goes in. And and it's like there's and I'm shooting to a pretty tight beam, but I felt like this kid was shooting to like a laser point and he was just hitting the balls. Just there's an exceptional level of cleanness that I see like with with like the top Europeans, you know, the Polish champs and the, you know, the top European champions where they just have that super crisp strike. And uh, this kid has it, man. And I'm just like, it's it's amazing to watch him play. And I look forward, you know, he wants to be on the Moscone Cup in the future. And anyway, I'm excited that we have a, a young generation of some really, really strong talent. But what's that about, man? How 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 come some players strike the how come it looks different for some players than others? And uh what is, what is that? Yeah, sure. So I think there's a, I mean, there's a little bit that plays into it with your age and kind of like what your narrative is with the game at the time. So I, I remember you telling me a little bit about this young guy, but I don't, I don't even know the kid's name. I mean, you just gave me a little background on him a little bit. So um, my guess would be this, you kind of find something that you're good at when you're young. And when you hop in a pool, like similar to maybe hopping into golf, you kind of have this uh, a little bit of a delusional sense of like what's capable. You don't really know. You haven't like really scratched the surface yet. 
but all you know is that you're kind of on this climb of learning this new skill the you know that's going up at a pretty rapid rate and then uh what i would say is kids don't really have any fear for the most part in that sense and i yeah I he, he sure was, didn't he sure didn't he was totally fearless yeah yeah and it, and i'm not saying this is uh made to be easy because of the maybe the the overall lack of competition at, around the, those age ranges but typically around those ages like there's only so many people who you know play pretty good so i mean there's probably let's say 10 people in the states that can probably play around that kid's speed at his age so that's like and most of those kids you're not competing with on a daily basis right so you're you're kind of just in this mindset that you're sort of the next big thing in a sense even though yeah you you get what i'm getting at here so then what happens is as you get older other things come into your life, whether it be, you know, going on to school or, or taking on jobs or relationships, what, whatever, you know, whatever that is for you personally. And then your, your mind isn't a hundred percent focused on like, you know, delivering this ball into the hole, however you have to get it there. And I, I just think that that happens like a little bit subconsciously over time. And then you, you sort of have this little ounce of fear creep in. And then before you know it, you're kind of like a little bit tense in a way, even if you have very good uh, fundamentals. And then it's really hard to like climb back from that. But of course, you know, you have the the one-off players who just sort of run that all the way to the top. I mean, that's how guys like, you know, Filler just kind of skyrocket. And it seems like nobody can beat the guy, right? Well, but I, but to your point, they kind of, I, I like to think about it as like a hill that gets increasingly steep to where the people that make it to the top oftentimes charge up and they just use their momentum to keep going without ever breaking stride. And I was talking about this before where it's a lot of the players that get to the top seem like they just burst up in a, in a hurry because of that. Whereas players that like get to a certain level and stop and then edge and climb slowly to the next level and then edge and climb slowly to the next level. It's very, very hard. Like if you look at guys like Chris Melling or John Mora or Josh Roberts or Billy Thorpe, it's really, really hard to get to a level and stop and then edge, 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 all the way up to 820 Fargo rate. It's really, really hard. Most people that are 8, 8, 10, 820 seem like they just got there in one big swoop before they had a chance to lose that momentum, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I guess I would use the, the concept or the analogy, like if you were climbing this hill and you you started with like hundreds of people and then by the time you hit like Fargo rate, like 700, let's say, let's just pretend that, in you know, in a vacuum here that your your next opponent is another person that's like, basically undefeated like you are and then like one of those people has to win and kind of climb up the next step well the people who kind of just you know i'm I'm not saying it's like complete luck or variance because you know whatever i mean people play good and they they get there but when you don't really have to have to deal with getting knocked down in that sense you you it's like impossible to actually doubt yourself because you've like all the results have been in your favor so then even when people start bringing up you know probably very logical points like well you know, you, you did miss these three balls. Like you, you missed the bank. It went off the side point and then, and kind of like shit out and got safe. Like that's, that is something that could have happened, but you can't even like see that. Cause you just, you, you tell the story yourself after a while that you just believe that you're basically invincible. Right. And it just seems like everything is going your way. I mean, you can watch it when Shane was dominating, how many great players had like chances to beat him in sets. And it just seemed like no matter what happened, they just found a way to like screw it up, hook themselves. And like Shane just kind of shot his way out of it. And even in like, like nowadays, I would say if he had to do those same sets against, you know, Jason Shaw, Josh Filler, these guys over and over, he's going to go into that, in my opinion, similar to how he goes into the Moscone Cup, which is like he might like 
you know, show a little bit of confidence on the exterior, but deep down now he's seen the downside of it. So he realizes like, like the truth is settling in. They're like, okay, I, I was running pretty hot. And although I, de- I delivered and played very well, I, I definitely was running a, a little bit above EV, you know, that that's just the way I view it. And I think, yeah. That, so, so it's, it's almost like, it's almost like when somebody is just deeply convinced that things are going to go their way and that they're going to be victorious, uh, their attitude towards adversity changes. They don't think, oh, this might be the set I lose. They think, well, how, you know, it's, it's, I guess the best way to say it is like when you're watching a movie where the protagonist is captured and handcuffed and, you know, and he's in jail and the bad guys are going to kill him at dawn or whatever. It's like, you don't think, oh no, I guess he dies. You're like, oh, how's he going to get out of this one? Cause he's the hero in the movie. And when people really, really believe that they're the hero in the movie, they just have a different attitude towards adversity. Like, oh, I guess this is what I'm going to overcome. And I wonder when my opponent's going to give me that unforeseen extra chance that I know I'm going to get. And that's going to be what turns things around. And they just don't really, they don't, they deep down believe that they're going to win in the end. Whereas when somebody has been beat a lot and they've lost a lot and then it's like, well, you just kind of lose that. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that right? Pretty much. Yeah. And my like last thing I would say is if, if, anybody like listening knows anything about like competitive fighting that that's a prime example of it is like there's so much trash talk leading up to that and and people seem to have this like really aggressive sense of confidence but if you really like pay attention you can see the guys and and pretty much like the way that they're truly acting and, and like kind of directly correlates with their their true record i mean the guys who are actually undefeated and just knock everybody out or just can't can't seem to lose no matter what strengths you bring to the fight those guys, I mean, they're on another level. Like they just, like, even if you bring up good points, like I said, they, they just don't believe it in their head that they're, that they have a chance to lose the fight. Like nothing can go wrong. Like, even if the, like, they don't believe that their legs can snap. They don't believe that they can, you know, slip well, on this, the camera or something. Right? Yeah. My, my dad told me about this cause he used to race motocross and stuff. And he would tell me that he, he, I think he said by the time you hit 20 or 21, he's like, people can't win anymore because there's a there's a group of 17 year olds that are starting to race that that think they're invincible and they can't die, and and the problem is he says that you know they they had a couple of sayings one of them was if you if you never crash then you're not racing fast enough because if you're if you're racing such that you never crash then you're gonna get beat by people that are willing to take those chances and the problem is if you're willing to take those chances then at some point you do have a few crashes and you break some bones and once you start having a few crashes you could just never race as fast again as these kids that haven't, you know what I mean? And yeah, so- yeah, no, it, it makes perfect sense. And I think, uh, I mean, I think that just, that plays over to every area in life, you know? I mean, when people are very aggressive in business, it's the same kind of concept. You're that way until all of a sudden you have to, uh, you know, support a giant mortgage and a, and a family and all these different things, right? Like, so, so what advice, so before we say it, I mean, because right now I feel like what we're saying is, and there's probably some truth to this. So, I mean, part of the answer might be just facing the reality, but like for a guy like me, that's, you know, still trying to play my best pool, uh, but has also faced a lot of defeats and faced a lot of realities and faced, you know, it's like, is what is there? You can't, I can't wave a wand and be 17 and, and delusional, uh, nor would I necessarily want to, but like, is there a, is there something that can be done or is there just, that's just, is there anything you can do to minimize the impact of that or, you know, or, or not really? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, uh, you and I have talked about this kind of stuff off, off air here. So we, we can kind of, uh, probably reiterate some things, but my opinion on that is yes, you can calm that down a little bit, but it, again, you, like, I know that you're not delusional, so you don't have it this idea that someday in the next like couple years, 
you're just going to be hitting the ball so good and you're just waiting for your strike of variance to hit that all of a sudden you're not only going to be like a guaranteed member of the Moscone team, but you're just going to be snapping off like all the majors. Like you don't truly believe that. And, and I don't think you ever would. I mean, I, I, and I would, if you did, I mean, it would be hard to hang out with you. Cause I think that would be, you know, very be elephant in the living room. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, this is uh this is awesome. As I, as we kind of break even sets, you know, the basement or something, but, uh, but yeah, you know, like that's the way that I think you move past that is you, you kind of stop paying attention to, to people who are not in the same position as you. So for instance, you can't base any of your goals or your, your effort that you're going to be putting into pool you can't compare it at all to the people that are traveling around full time without families, you know, without kids and all these whatever different things, because you're just not coming from the same place. And that doesn't mean you should even be comparing to anybody in the first place. You should just make, you know, realistic expectations for yourself and say, okay, I'm okay with the idea that I'm going to play anywhere from, you know, three to maybe eight big tournaments a year, depending on how the, the pro schedule is working. And you just know that you're going to devote X amount of time to practice and, and every time you go, you're, you're going to give it like your full energy and not really be distracted by the outside things. Because you know you what? Start, I, I think that's know. a perfect answer. I mean, and it's, this is kind of something where it kind of comes down to the idea that goals have to be believable. And so if I was trying to sit there and tell myself that, you know, like I'm some like in the rookie or something that I'm just going to, you know, hit my basement hard for five hours a week and then come out and start snapping off majors. Like, I'm not going to believe that. And when, what happens is when you try to convince yourself of something that's not true, it doesn't work. It leads to fear of exposure and doubt. And, and then anytime things don't go right, you're like back to like, you're always having to sell yourself on the idea that this is actually going to work. Whereas when you actually believe something deep, deep down. So it's almost like you have to figure out what do you believe deep, deep, deep down you can do. And so like, I don't expect that I can, you know, go, you know, snap off a major like the U S open, but I do believe I can improve my break. And I do believe I can improve my jump shot. And I do believe that I can give myself more chances in the future than I've given myself in the past in the sense that, you know, if I can play four to six big events a year and do that for three, four or five years, that's more shells, than, you know, in more time in a, in a shorter duration than I've ever given myself before. And so with more shells comes, you know, more acclimation and just more opportunities to, to run good and, and, and win big matches and, and then build on some momentum and get, you know, get well, you know what I mean? And develop from that. So it's like, I can put more in, in terms of big shots. I can develop certain parts of my game and I have a picture of what my game can look like that I believe that I can actually put together with the time and resources I have and the number of at-bats I have. And then that's what I'm trying to do. And so it's like, the bottom line is, I guess you have to make sure your goals are believable. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, this one might be something you might slightly disagree with, but this is something that I've kind of paid attention to over time. Um, my easiest way to find like where I think people are at is I just like, you know, I, I'm not really involved in like social media at this point in my life, but, uh, but if you hopped on, let's say on Facebook and kind of just grabbed people who, you know, are kind of like up and coming pool players, like whatever they're doing with their engagement is for me, like I, just to tell all of like where they're truly at mentally, because if you're, if you're looking out to like the, you know, social media world to kind of get you like this, this added support and sort of reinforce this idea that your dream is like going to come true, then I uh, think it's already failed. And I, so the, the measure of your confidence is, is by the lack of necessity of anybody else. Like you don't need anybody supplementing your confidence because you're just like, it's me in a pool with you and I know where I'm going. Whereas these people are looking for like, like it's almost like if somebody was going to play, like if I was going to play a money set, 
like who do you, or, or, or which sounds more confident? Like if you were going to bet on the side or not, you had to decide if you wanted to bet on the side in situation A, I'm like, Hey, Jesse, I, this guy offered to play me. I'm going out there with 10 grand. I'm betting everything I can. And the other situation, I'm like, do you think I should play him? Do you want to go in with me? Do you think, you know what I mean? It's like, it's just like, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, obviously with that specifically, like you're close enough friend where, you know, if you were going to play something that I thought was like within a range of being able to win, I would probably take a piece just out of support, you know, but, but of course I know the point you're making there. And yeah, I think, I think that's just something that people don't really take a close look at, you know, I mean, it's like, you're, you're basically trying to sell results before it happens. Right. And like, I mean, I, the counter argument to that is like, if you go back to something like fighting, I mean, usually the people who are super loud and, and display the most confidence, they, they usually have an upper edge when it comes fight time because they've sort of already won the mental game, but, but that's a whole nother topic. So I, I'll just say like people who are, are traveling around specifically playing pool, which is not, you know, going to be, you don't really have to worry about getting punched in the face. So like, you know what to expect. You're playing a game that's kind of in a confined set of rules and, and you're reaching out for, you know, I mean, it's, it's good to have support and a following, but I just, I think you know the point I'm trying to make, and maybe you can explain it a little bit better, but I just, when I've seen this so many times, uh, it's just so easy to, for me to kind of call, like, how much longer their career has, in my opinion. <laughs> so Yeah, well, and I hate to be cynical, but it's a lot easier to, it's a lot easier to bet against people making the top of pool than it is, but you know, it's not, so uh, to get there. But okay, okay, so one one last question on this that I have is, that explains why that happens. However, what physically happens? What is it physically that allows this 13-year-old strike to look so good? Or these Polish champions like Miesko and Conrad, like what allows their strike to look so crisp and perfect? Whereas when I stroke the ball, it's very good. Like, I mean, okay, I'm very good, but it's like, there's a difference between like very good and like, you know what I'm talking about? That sweet, like pure, yep. where they look yeah. at the ball and they get down and they stroke and it looks like it's a laser where everything just goes like exactly how they wanted it to strike with the stroke sure. and the sighting and the delivery. Where does that physically manifest? I understand that I'm, I'm you know, I'm a coward and I'm, and I'm past my prime and my eyesight's failing and my nerves are shot, but I've, I got a flat tire. I get that. But like, where does that physically come out? Okay. So make sure I'm answering this like the way that you're you know, actually trying to ask it. I, I think that when you're young, again, you're so focused on on this game or, or when you're putting every, all your eggs into this this game in a sense, right? Whether you're 13 or 23, I mean, there's there's people who do that. So when you're in that, that mode, like your thought process is always revolving around pool in some sense. Like I remember when I used to be, you know, very obsessed with the game and, and back when I was even in school, like I just could not go like an hour without thinking about some sort of, you know, pattern that kind of played out or, or a mistake that I'd recently made and understanding, like I would like play out visually how that, like maybe how the cue ball like went the wrong path and maybe why that happened. So I'm always constantly thinking about that. And I'm just a like huge believer that everything that like, you know, connects with your nerves, every, everything in your body, like connects back to your brain, of course. So if you're, if you're like fully consumed in that, then all your muscle memory and all your thoughts are kind of just, you know, revolved around pool. And, and maybe I'm, you know, overstepping in a, in a category that I'm not like, you know, too, uh, I guess too knowledgeable about, but that's just my, that would just be my main assumption there would be, you know what? I think, I think I can agree with this because I think what it's like is there's like different levels of concentration. And when you first, you know, like I've had this experience where like I go to my practice table, like I should practice. And like in my mind, I remember, you know, hitting the balls pretty good and running tables. 
And so then I pick up my cue and I just think, okay, you know, pick my shot, make my decision, aim it at the hole, shoot. And it's sometimes, sometimes I fall in the zone, but a lot of times it's like a cold shower where, you know, I've been thinking about other stuff and podcasting and, and training and, and kids and whatever else. And all of a sudden it's like a cold shower where like I start missing balls and rattling balls and it's rough and my cute, my strokes not going where I thought. And it's like, man, what, like I forgot how it's like almost there's a lot of days where I forget how hard you have to focus to play that game. And then when people say, Oh, sometimes it takes me a little while to get stroke. What are they really talking about? It's like their muscles, muscle memory is still there. The connections in their brain are still there, but what it is, is like little by little by little letting go of, you know, it's like releasing those other thoughts and releasing those other thoughts. And when you're thinking about this or thinking about that, it's like, no, 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 letting go of all that, turning back to the present, focusing only on pool. And, and that's a process. And I know that when I go to a tournament, um, you know, say I went to a, like a longer tournament, like the Derby is a great example, you know, um, match after match, after match, after match, your thoughts start approaching the spot. Cause you're right. I agree with you hundred percent. When I was 14, 15, 16, I might not have a non pool thought enter my head. You know what I mean? Whereas, whereas now I have to find, it's like, I have to find my way back to that spot every time I play. And when you've been playing in a week long event, match after match, Sometimes you could find your way back there where for a while, like, you know, I love my children more than anything, but there are days that go by where I might not even really, I might, you know, for that, you know, as I'm deep in a tournament, like I might, it's, it's not that I forget that I'm a dad or I forget that I love my kids, but it's like, I just, my attention is so absorbed in what I'm doing that I, I approach that single mindedness that you're looking for. And that when you, when I'm under pressure and when I've been playing in a session that's longer and longer, all of a sudden, it's like my pupils dilate and I start seeing the edge of the ball. And then all of a sudden, maybe my stroke does start hitting that pure spot where I'm hitting exactly the way I want to. So maybe, you, maybe you're right. Maybe it's not something physical with my stance or my stroke that's not as crisp as these top players. Maybe it's just that you've got to, you know, your pupils have to dilate. And that takes such a deep level of concentration where I have to find it. Whereas these full-time players, that's just where they stay. Yeah, that's that's pretty much exactly. Well, that's good to know, though, because then it's like if I'm ever stroking and the balls aren't going as crisply as I want, instead of thinking, oh, I've got a what am I doing? Maybe it's my grip or something. I could think, OK, that's feedback focus. You know, I need to focus more. I need to just release my thoughts and I need to get more interested and more absorbed into what I'm doing. And I'm not saying that you could suddenly manhandle it and just force a perfect level of focus, but at least I'm not going down the wrong paths. You know what I mean? Sometimes not going down the wrong path, like by trying to find physical diagnosis, sometimes that's as valuable as, you know, at least then you're not making it worse. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. So this is like a, you know, this is a good point of, like how a pool doesn't really have, as we know, a very, very structured schedule. I mean, maybe once you get up to the very, like the top, whatever, it's 20 players, and you do have a lot of options in other countries and what have you, right? Then you can probably argue you could stay busy enough between that, hitting up some local tournaments. I'm sure there's like some, a lot of players that'll play you some sets that are trying to get, get good, where you can stay busy enough for that. But I know this, like between you and I, we're very similar in this sense where, we both have a capability that we could almost like literally forget about everything else in the world and just completely focus on one thing for a while. Like, like you've said how you'll be in a tournament and sometimes you, you don't tell you forget that you're a dad, but it's not like every 30 minutes you're like, Oh, I wonder how, you know, wonder how my daughter's doing, or I wonder how this is going because you're just, you're too focused on one thing. And then it, it might come up later when you're not, you know, consumed by pool, but that's a, 
that that's something that I think, you know, hindered me personally quite a bit is that there's too much downtime in between the time that you actually compete and more, I mean, especially now, like for me, this is precisely the reason why I just don't, I mean, have any interest in playing pool seriously, because even as you know, around here in where we live, there's only so many tournaments you can actually play in. And and nowadays it's like the handicap are just going up and up to the point where it's, it's not really enticing. You want to go play. And that that's fine. That's just the nature of like how the, the pool community works. But but for me, that's just, it's not enough for me to like even be able to like want to concentrate and get to that, like that Zen level when you play, you know? So I might try to do it once or twice a year at, at a specific tournament. But other than that, it's like, it, it's just too hard for me to want to like convince myself that I can get to that deep level, you know? Yeah. It's an interesting one. <clears throat> so I'm glad we talked about that. And uh, you know, it's funny. It's like, we didn't have any of that conversation. Like none of this is planned. It's just very, very cool, man. This is a, uh, you know, there's different ways to do a podcast and some people like to have real prepared stuff, but I, I kind of like just talking pool. So, uh, so speaking of talking pool, is it okay if I change the subject? Yeah, that's fine. I think we've uh, kind of beat that horse enough. So, okay. Well then, uh, because that one went a little longer than I planned, but I'm not going to cut any of that. Uh, I want to do a quick plug for my boot camp. Uh, so for first time listeners, I run a three day pool boot camp. Uh, you can get more information at www.mnpoolbootcamp.com. The MN stands for Minnesota. It's Minnesota Pool Bootcamp. So www.mnpoolbootcamp.com. Uh, come travel to Minnesota. Stay with me for three days, and I'll change your not just I won't just change your game. I'll change your trajectory. And I wanted to do. I just wanted to talk about one idea that's been on my mind today. Um, because I also went out and did some uh, cross training and some collaboration with Dr. Dave uh, a couple a couple of weeks ago. I was actually in Denver to do some uh, stuff with Dr. Dave that was pretty fun. And so more on that in the future. There's some other things about our time together that I thought would be interesting to talk about. But um, we uh, we made a few videos together that he's put posted on his channel. So if you don't already follow Dr. Dave, check out Dr. Dave on YouTube. Uh, and you'll see we've done a couple collaborations and one of them had to do with, um, well, I wanted to, so, so I just wanted to give a little mini lesson. So as my, my, instead of just plugging my boot camp, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of what I train on. And it was really hard for me to, I'm just going to have to pick a very, very simple idea because if I went into any more depth, uh, it just gets to be too long, but for a little plug. So today I want to introduce a concept to people I call the target and the gun. And so another way to frame this topic would be a little mini lesson would be don't play position to a point. So I've seen this a lot when people are trying to get better at playing position and try to get better in their cue ball is they, they've come up and they say, I'm going to try to play position to a point. And I've seen people do things like when they put their tip on the table on every shot, like I'm going to try to get there. Now I'm going to try to get there. Now I'm going to try to get there. Or they'll put a, you know, some people tell me I'm going to put a coin on the table. Then I try to get to the coin. Now, if you want to practice your cue ball and you want to set up a certain shot and put a coin on the table and then see how close you can come to that coin, that's totally fine because that's practice. But when you actually compete, you can't play to a point. And the reason you can't play to a point is because you can't hit a point that's too small of a target. And so if you if you set up a positional shot where if you play such that you have to stop on a dime for your run to work, 
you will probably fail because you will not stop on a dime. So the way that I try to teach my, you know, intermediate advanced players, both, both can learn a lot here uh, is that there are two things. There's a target and a gun. So when you call out a pattern, say you're playing eight ball and you say, I'm going to shoot the seven, then the five, then the one, and then the eight. Well, when you say you're going to shoot the seven and get on the five ball, you've actually created a target on the table that you need to hit for your run to continue. And then when you shoot the five to get on whatever the one ball is the same story. You need to be able to, you've created another target where you need to play the five and get to that one ball zone. And so that's fine. Okay. So those are targets. Those are not points. Those are zones. A lot of times they're cone shaped, you know, they get wider as you get further from the object ball. Uh, there's things you can do to increase likelihood of hitting that target, like playing with the line that, of that zone or using rails as breaks or playing for the wider part of the zone. It's accepting a little distance. There's like, okay. But anyway, there's a zone, but the other thing is that there's the gun that you use. So that's the target you have to hit, but then you're also using a gun to hit that target. And that gun is the cue ball maneuver that you're using. So for example, a stop shot is a cue ball maneuver, a follow shot where you're going to make the ball straight in and follow forward. That's a cue ball maneuver. Uh, there's a stun shot. It's a cue ball maneuver. You have all kinds of different ways. You can multiple rail shots with spin, different types of cue ball maneuvers. And the, 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 where a lot of players struggle with their patterns, and this goes all the way up to like, well, any, you know, high levels of players, they don't understand the difference between good guns and bad guns. So there's no, there's no real scale that measures the quality of your gun. Now with pocketing, people know the difference between an easy shot and a hard shot. You know that if a ball's hanging in the corner, that's an easy shot. And you know that if the ball's in the middle of the table and you're shooting from the end rail, that's a hard shot. And we have a pretty good feel of what's hard and easy because the pockets are visible and they're very clear. And we also have a measure of how we can talk about difficulty of, of shot making. And we can talk about make percentage. What do you think your make percentage on that hanger is? Oh, 99.5. Okay, what do you think your make percentage is on that ball in the middle of the table? Man, I'm probably 50-50. Okay, so we've got make percentage as your measure of how hard a shot is. But we don't really have a measure of how hard a positional maneuver is. And so I'm trying to introduce a new idea into pool, which is that there is a measure of how good a cue ball maneuver is. And that measure is your scatter. So set up that positional maneuver and shoot it 10 times. How big of a, and mark where you stopped each time. How big of a circle do those you know, say I, I use spots. To, I have like a tin of like a tin of extra pool spots, like the spots you put for the you know where the break spot is. I just I don't glue them on the table. I just have a tin of spots I use. That way, if I used coins, then my cue ball rolls over the coins and it doesn't work. So anyway, I use these spots. So if I mark out ten shots and I use spots on the table to mark where I landed, how big of a circle do those spots encompass? Like how big is my scatter? If I'm trying to shoot to get to the middle of the table. Are all 10 spots stacked on top of each other, like Robin Hood in the middle of the table? Are they in a one-foot circle? Or are they in a three-foot circle? And that, to me, that's the scatter of a shot. So, for example, a stop shot, I'm going to have a very, very, very good scatter where all 10 shots are probably going to be stacked on top of each other. If it's a medium-range stop shot, they're going to be very, very close, three-inch circle. If I have to shoot a ball straight on the side and follow forward a foot, that's going to be a very good scatter. 
They're not going to be stacked on top of each other, but they're going to be within like a five inch circle. If I have to cut a ball thin and send my cue, you know, send my cue ball multiple rails to the middle of the table, like head rail, you know, head end rail to end rail back to the middle of the table on a thin cut, my scatter is going to be much bigger. It might be a four foot circle or a three foot circle. And so that's a cool idea is, okay, so how that tells you how good your positional, your gun is, how, how good is that cue ball maneuver? And what I would say, so now we've got a new concept of how to measure cue ball maneuvers. And we're looking at our targets that we're mapping out because we're not shooting for a spot. And I guess that's what I, so that where, where do runs break down is that if you're using an accurate gun to a big target, you will hit that target. And if so, and if you're using an accurate gun with a tight scatter to a small target, you could still hit that target because you've got an accurate enough gun. But if you're using an inaccurate gun to a small target, then you will likely miss your target. So the first example, I, and I'm not going to go much deeper without a pool table, but like first example, you have a stop shot and you can stop anywhere on this half the table and have a shot and you're shooting an easy stop shot. Like you're shooting a good gun stop shot to a huge target, half the table. The next case you are shooting a stop shot, which is a good gun, to a small target. Well, you've got a small target, but you're shooting a stop shot, so therefore you should be okay. However, now you're trying to hit a small target, and you're shooting a ball in the corner, and you're drawing your cue ball five feet backwards to hit a small target. Well, a five-foot draw, I don't know about you, Jesse, but for me, probably a three three-foot scatter at least. And so odds are I'm going to miss that small target. And that's going to cause problems. So when people are calling out their runs to me when I'm training, a lot of times in my mind, I'm just like, I'm thinking about the targets that they're creating and the guns they're using to get there. And I'm like, okay, accurate gun, big target, good. Accurate gun, small target, good. Big, you know, poor, inaccurate gun to a small target. Hmm. And then I'm like, well, that's where that run's going to break down. And then they shoot and that's where the run breaks down. And then we learn something. So, so I guess what I'm trying to do with this segment is both teach and explain what I do at my boot camp. So, so that's my teaching for the day is to introduce these concepts, to be aware of how, you know, how big of a target are you actually shooting for and how good is your cue ball maneuver to get there. And then in terms of what I train on, uh, that gives some ideas of what I train on are that I have, I have ranked the different cue ball maneuvers in pool from best to worst. And so I have a set of core shots of 10 shots that I have found give me the tightest scatter to allow me to move my cue ball up and down table, multiple rails with accuracy. So that I'm not just hoping to get on a shot. I'm playing to have the right angle or not be on the rail and, you know, get good on balls. Uh, even if I have to move my ball around the table. And so when I train with students, I spend a lot of time. My ultimate goal is I want everybody to know what these 10 shots are why they're superior in terms of scattered. We can test them out and it's pretty eye-opening to test these shots against other shots so that we know what types of angles and shots we should be using to move around the table. Oftentimes though, to get to that point, and then I, I want everyone to understand what these shots are, how to hit them, and then how to assemble them so that they're creating big targets and using accurate guns so that they have predictable, repeatable, consistent runouts. Because I believe that 
more so than fundamentals is the key to consistency is using accurate guns to big targets. That's for me, the best consistency possible. The same way, if you were shooting a triple hard shot, you're never going to be as consistent as a guy shooting an easy shot, no matter how long you work on your stroke. So, but the thing is what's cool about it and where this becomes one-on-one instruction is that that's the end goal is that you have these tools and know how to connect them and assemble fine runouts, how to read the table, you know, assemble correct patterns and hit those patterns using the right guns. But to get there, I might have to, you know, fill in blanks of knowledge as to, you know, how these shots work. And I might have to fill in gaps in technique as far as how to execute them or get the right tip accuracy, the right stroke speeds or the right, the right frequency. Uh, I might have to fill in some, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes in between, you know, beginning and end. And that's kind of like the end point. And so then if I have to fill fill in gaps on knowledge and technique and practice, and then all the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of little things that come up where maybe somebody's shooting that shot with inside English and they're using, you know, straight side spin and their cue ball swerving. And if they use a little bit of high with the side spin, then they keep a more level cue and it makes this shot play a little bit better or all those little miscellaneous things that come up between the beginning and the end. Uh, Not to say that the end. So, so I guess that that's where the one-on-one comes in is I take where my students at currently for knowledge and for technique, and we just build it to where it needs to be so that they understand why these shots have better scatters, how to hit them and how to assemble them into clean runouts. And along the way, we're doing breaking and jumping and, and, and safeties and ki- kicks and end games and strategy and, you know, mental game for sure. Anything that comes up between the beginning and uh, the high level of pool. So I, I just wanted to introduce those concepts of target and gun and talk a little bit about, uh, you know, there's a lot of players that, that think it's just about, I know how to get from A to B. I know all, I have all these tools and I know how to pocket ball. So let me just try to get better and better at just, you know, bombing through racks. But there's, there are higher levels of play out there. I'd love to help you get there. So look me up, come out to Minnesota and let's rock and roll. All right. Anything you want to add on that, Jesse? Uh, thanks for giving me a little time there. Uh, anything that stands out to you or should we just jump into our main topic? Yeah, I think we're just ready to jump in, man. I think you did a pretty good job explaining that, and it's a good concept, so I'm good with that. Cool, cool. All right, so today, Jesse, what are we talking about today? Why don't you why don't you take it for a bit? All right, so if I remember correctly, what we are going to be discussing is the general idea about or revolving around the growth of pool and a lot of little small ideas that might kind of impact that. Is that pretty summed up there, or? Yeah. And this one, I, uh, you have some things that I, we talked a little bit uh, a few months ago, and I thought you had some fascinating uh, hot takes, some new hot takes on, on pool. And I mean, there's been so much conversation about how to grow the game, you know, is whose job it is, how to do it, what conditions have to be in place. So, so in, within the subject of the growth of the game, where do you want to steer from there? Well, uh, I mean, I have some ideas of, or general concepts on uh, on the idea of how to grow it, but yeah, just go, just go. Tell okay. me what's on your mind. So, I mean, yeah, like you said, we've had this conversation many different times uh, when we we're traveling different tournaments or just hanging out, whatever. Um, my general idea is just that obviously the way that it's been, you know, tried to to grow is is clearly not working. I mean, it's never really worked over the past couple of decades. It might have had a few small spurts here and there. Um, I know right now things are, you know could be looked at as pretty decent considering that, uh, you know, like how matchrooms run in some events and with the predator tour. But my personal opinion is while those are really great for players who are traveling around trying to make a living uh, to have something to do and, you know, pocket some extra money. 
I just don't believe that that's ever going to lead to a like a sustainable growth in the game. And, and unless somehow, you know, we get, or we as like the pool community, I guess, would get uh, this giant influx of money that's just like impossible to run through in the next 20 to 30 years. So, so let, me, let me ask you about this, because I have heard, you know, a lot of people are very excited about Bashroom. And I like their events. I've played, you know, I, I enjoy the events and uh, I enjoy the entertainment of watching. I'm glad that the top players have a place. But as far as, you know, I guess there's a question is how does how does Matchroom help the average player? Uh, you could say it provides entertainment to them. But in terms of like in terms of like if you're a if you're a, a league player and you play, you know, locally and in your local pool community, you know, Matt, how does Matchroom help you? Because 99.999% of pool players are not, you know, top 20 in the world where they're going to directly benefit. So, I mean, I think there's some theory, Jesse, that like, well, if Matchroom grows an audience for pool, then more people will start playing pool. That'll be good. It's like a trickle down, right? Like if we do this at the top, it's going to trickle down and create more interest in the game that, that that'll then spur an influx of players into the local pool community uh, or, or that maybe Matchroom, if they're very successful, that Matchroom will grow. And as they grow, then they'll start running events that, that circle the regional events and, and maybe will trickle down. So either it'll bring more people in or they'll bring more events in that'll eventually matter to somebody that's listening to this podcast. Uh, I'm not, I'm not convinced that'll happen. Uh, you know, honestly, like uh, I, I know a lot of people, hope that that'll happen it's just such a long road to get from there to there that what do you think i mean do you think that that's what likely or unlikely uh extremely unlikely okay so my my opinion on it is this a while i do think like i said i I think they're running a lot of great things i think that predator tour is pretty cool in its own way as well but the idea that if like if you build it you know they will come type of thing over a long term it just doesn't work in, in that in that current setup. So the landscape, the way that I see it in pool is that you have, you know, a small percentage of players who travel around squeaking out a living, or maybe some of them are, you know, partially part-time players trying to make it to the, to the big stage, if you will. And then you're always going to have that percentage of people who are kind of like what's known as like the diehards in the game that are endlessly going to support it. They will, they'll be the guys that'll fly out to every Moscone cup, at least that's in the States. They'll go and support the the pro or semi pro tournaments that are in their area, and that that's amazing. Like, I mean, I'm thankful for that. That's allowed me to play in a lot of tournaments that never would have happened. I mean, even the one that we went and played, uh, well, I guess it was last summer. Now, the one out in Virginia. I mean, events like that can't happen unless there's a lot of players like that and a lot. And of I just sport. want to congratulate once again James Aradas. <laughs> Sorry, uh, that was that was the uh, whew, what good memories. So yeah. yeah, big big sweat there. But um, but yeah, so so my opinion is like they it's pretty easy to figure out how to run decent sized tournaments like that. It it's finding a, a pool room that can support it or an area that can support it that has a big enough pool demographic where there's gonna be enough like I mean, I don't mean to say this in a bad way, but there has to be enough dead money, like supporting money to, to pay for those events to happen. Like if you really want to break it down to the stats. There's a, there's a small, small percentage of people who are just positive EV in those tournaments, and those are the, the top players, and they will come and they, they will take more money out of the, that, that event than they will, they will have put in on an average, you know, average basis there. And then there's a, a very high percentage of people who are supporters who get their entertainment value, who get to you know, 
you know, go hill hill with one of those great players or whatever their their like personal uh, goals are with that thing. And that that's all great. I just um, I'm just a firm believer that if you are truly trying to do something for the growth of the game, you you have to have like a, a real idea of how to reverse engineer your end goal. And what like what you're doing, what you're promoting, does that like is that really in line with getting to that end goal? And I know this is easy for me to say because I, I say this behind a laptop without really putting in any effort to to growing the game. So I'm not trying to, you know, say I'm coming from a place of like whatever you want to call it, right? There's uh there's a lot of great things like with uh that Mike Zuglin tour, right? That's uh that's the one that runs Turning Stone, isn't it? The, yes, sir. I'm trying to think what it is, but like he runs a great thing out there. The, the jaw, it's the Jaws tour, yeah. Okay, yeah, thanks for the reminder there. So, like, he's done a great job, in my opinion. I mean, say what you want about, like, whatever, how his tournaments are ran, or I, I don't really know. I've, I've only played in the turning zone a few times. But I think that's an amazing thing. Like, he, he runs, like, weekend tournaments for the average-level players, and some of, like, the up-and-coming professionals I know have kind of went and had their years of sort of dominating on that tour. And then he also runs these pretty decent money added at, at a big casino and, and that's those are those have been very consistent so i in my opinion he's done what he needs to do and he he's brought a great thing to pool like those are that's a huge staple in american pool and the way that i see it so and, and to, to also add to that it's it's a huge staple because it's not it's not a u.s open where even guys who play at, around our level like you know we're both in the mid of 700s of the fargo rating i mean guys like you and I can go to the, that type of tournament and we can be competitive. We, there's not, you know, there's enough like where we can, we can beat most of the people there on a, you know, wh- whatever our true percentage is there, but we're not signing up to, you know, to fly across the country to play the best 18 players in the world every single time. And that in that, that, that is what creates growth because. So, okay. So, so let me, let me slow down here because you're covering a lot of ground and there's just a couple things that I want to slow down on so people can keep up with you and uh, including myself. So the first thing is uh, when you talk about EV, just for everybody, so that's expected value. So when he's talking about players that are positive EV, he means on average, they're going to be profitable at a certain event. And with pool, so, so one of the things that has to happen for pool growth is that there has to be, there has to be some money somewhere to be won by players so that players will show up. And so that's always a question of where does the money come from? And so what Jesse, because Jesse made a statement, I just wanted to come back to this, is you mentioned that there has to be dead money. And so dead money means players that can't win money or players that are negative expected value, meaning if they play that tournament 10 times, maybe they cash once or twice, maybe they break even once, maybe they win a little bit once, but the other eight times they bust out. And overall, they're losing money every time they play. That would be, you know, when, and players that just can't really win uh, at that tournament that they're playing. So that would be dead money. And so, so why he said that there has to be dead money is because for the pool to grow is that, well, the money's got to come from somewhere. Now I've mentioned this before. So my thought is, is that there's always three places that money can come from for pool. It could come from the dead money players that don't have a chance that are willing to come out of pocket to challenge themselves it or to get better. It could come from, sponsors, corporate sponsors that are, uh, you know, contributing to the event, or it could come from viewers, whether it's online pay-per-view or whether it's in-person ticket sales or both. And, and so the interesting part about that model too is, is that 
two of those things depend on the audience. The, the ticket sales or pay-per-views depends on directly how many people are watching, whereas the sponsorship that is indirectly based on how many people are watching because the more people are watching, the more interested a sponsor would be to get their advertising message out. So a lot of it has to do with how many people are watching and how many people are playing without a reasonable chance of winning. That's where the money flows from. Without those things, um, you can't just, you can't really grow the game. So I think getting back to Turning Stone then, uh, what you're saying is, you know, in Turning Stone, it's very successful because in that event, there is, uh, there is some dead money. I mean, there's 128 players. The player list just came out. I mean, maybe there's, maybe there's 25 that have a realistic chance of winning the event. Uh, you know, maybe there's 10 that are you know much, much more likely. And then another 15 that it's not without of the realm of possibility. And that means that there's another, you know, reasonably half the field is kind of dead money in that field. And so, let me ask you, Jesse, why do those people play that event if they can't win? Well, I mean, I can't speak for each individual, but I have to make an assumption. No, I want on... you to. Let's start with the first guy. His name is Carl. Go. Okay. So Carl, uh, civil engineer from Massachusetts. Yeah. So these guys, uh, well, they're passionate about the game, right? Like I said, this is what I, can, I referred to as like the diehards. They're, they love the game. They love being around players and, and let's be honest, I mean, we all have this in us to a certain extent in our life where we want to go be around people who are kind of like the popular or, you know, high achievers in our, you know, like our hobby area, right? I mean, I'm not saying that everybody's starstruck in the same sense, but a lot of the reason why a lot of people go there is because they're, they're looking for that story, you know, they're looking for that story of how, um, I don't even know, but they're looking for the story where they, they beat Johnny Archer 9-7 in that tournament, and don't really care how it got there, but they, they want to have that, that story, you know, and, uh, and they want to go hang around those guys. And they, and a lot of them do want to challenge themselves because they are trying to improve, but they're, those people are doing that in a sense where they don't really care about the the end result financially. And they're close enough. Like, like I said, up in that area, there's so many pool players where they're the supply and demand for that specific tour. And, and those events, you know, are, it's just, it's never ending. I mean, you, you can't get into the tournament. I remember when I, I tried to get into it like a handful of years ago and I wasn't even close. There was like so many people on the waiting list already. And that was like three months leading up to the event. And I was like, okay, well that that's good. I mean, that's good for him. You know, like why, why should I receive special treatment or why should there be, he, he shouldn't have to open up the field. I mean, he, not that he'd be able to get it done in the four days anyways, but he just, he's built a great product there where he's found the right threshold of the barrier entry for the players to get in for their expenses, their entry fee and the right like level of, of prestige where people are excited about that. They get, you know, they they're dressed up when they play. I mean, he's got the, just all the right things in place. I'm not saying that everything about that tournament is maybe perfect because I, I haven't been there in, like I said, probably seven, eight, nine years. But the point is, is that he's built a great product that has consistent success and, and as far as I know, a, a pretty endless waiting list. Like he's never not had a full field there unless I'm, I'm way off, but, but I'm pretty certain that that's how it's been for the past decade at least. So, yeah. So, and, and, and the other one that's a lot like that, you're right. I'm actually, it's two weeks out from when I'm recording this. I'm looking forward to going out there. Uh, and yeah, it's very, very, very full. The other one that's kind of similar in terms of like 
in terms of dead money is, uh, and in terms of as Derby, you know, you get a lot of top players, a lot of, uh, a lot of not top players out there for the same reasons, the prestige to be around other players, short sets, knowing that you might be able to get a couple scalps that you get to watch a lot of great pool and be a part of an active scene. So as we get into your plan or your ideas of what it would take to grow the game, uh, I think that those are some interesting questions is, you know, why are Derby and turning stone so successful when so many other stops can't fill up, a you know, can't, you know, like, like I'll put it this way. If, if we went to a pool room, Jesse, and and try to run a you know a five hundred dollar a thousand dollar added big table nine ball tournament locally here, it would not fill up. You know you might get five or ten guys that were the most likely to win that event, and then once they couldn't get enough players, it would just get canceled. So so that that's the mystery is why why if we ran an event here would it not fill? But he's got a waiting list. So go ahead, I'll let you. I just wanted to kind of I find it interesting that it's possible to run big table events and have a waiting list or 500 player fields like Derby. And it's also possible to run them where you can't even fill the things. So what's sure. the difference? And you can, you can either talk about that or you can take it where you wanted to go. I just wanted to mention that it is, that's kind of what we're trying to get at is where, where's the meat, where's the meat come from? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, again, I don't know how much like due diligence that he did before he started running those tournaments, but I mean, clearly he knew that there was enough demand over there to, to run that thing. Or maybe he was just a guy that I'm talking about turning stone here. Maybe he just found a way to get into that, that casino and, and found a good deal with diamond to, you know, get the tables or whatever it is. And, you know, it just sort of worked. I mean, it might just be one of those things where 10 people tried and, and that one just happened to work because it was in the prime area. It was ran correctly the way that people wanted it. And somehow it's just still here today. But well, my opinion, uh, yeah, just cool. about that is my opinion is that, I, it was, it's kind of the, the argument of it is like, or the, the tricky thing to figure out is are people really trying to, to figure out, like, are they really trying to figure out what is the best event for their area and like how to run that to make it the most sustainable? Or are they, is their ego getting in the way when they, when they come into a, a potential sum of like sponsorship money and they want to run the next big thing so they can, you know, have all these like accolades for their, their achievements. Right. And that's just where I see a lot of things that happen in pool. I mean, I'll so let, let me jump in because in Josh, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the Josh verbal theory and, and, and this is twice the Josh verbal theory. So for, you know, a moment of silence, Josh, we, we miss you. We'll, we'll get, we'll talk Josh into getting on a podcast again sometime, but anyway, um, so couple things, first of all, he talks about when you're in business for self, that there's a certain amount of time in which your repeat and referral business starts going up as people, as you just get, you know, brand name recognition and just enough people know about you. So like one thing that happens at the turning stone, for example, is when I play there here in a few weeks, then he's going to have, that's when he's going to open up, sign up for the August tournament. He has two a year. And and so everybody that's in the January tournament is the first on the list to get the sign up for the August tournament. And so he's probably going to fill the majority of the August tournament just off of red retention, right? You know what I mean? Repeat customers. And so so that's the first part is when you've been established for a while, it's easy to fill up future events because then you've got a client base, if you will. Uh, the other part is, is uh, Josh talks a lot about, he used to really be passionate about this, about supply and demand. And he thought that the best growth strategy for tournaments was to keep, make sure that the demand was always higher than the supply. So for example, this goes right to what you're saying about somebody that gets some sponsorship money and gets a little ambitious. It's better to have a 32-player field tournament that fills up, 
where you have people that wish they could have gotten in but couldn't, and the thing runs smoothly and because it's not over. You didn't go to 64 players, uh, and because you know it's not that extra day, it's not you know it's not a cluster of early mornings and late nights. You take that 32 player tournament, you fill the brackets, you have a little bit of a waiting list, you run it perfectly, and then. And you do that a few times. And then what happens is you've got a ton of players that wanted to get in. They see how good the event was. And then if the growth is, if the demand is there to, to where you know that you could go to a 64 player and still have a wait list, well, now you can go to 64, but you don't, you don't go to 64 and then not be able to fill the thing and then have people feel like, well, I can sign up or not sign up. I don't have to worry about it because then they get non-committal because I know I can always sign up. I'm wow, that thing never fills. And then people, it like loses its energy and prestige somehow. Uh, there's, that's the only other thing I want to talk about, about a recurring event that runs for a while. This is more back to the first point about longevity is that players know that it's a good tournament to go to because they've seen it run before. Uh, they know that it, they, it, it, it they know that it's a good tournament. They know it pays well. They know that it, it goes off, that it's not going to just be canceled and not happen. Uh, they know that, uh, and, it, and it develops some prestige. You know, we've got a tournament locally in our area that has a waiting list every year. And it was the same thing where it's like, it's better out a long time. People just know what's going to be on their list. Everybody puts it on their stop and it has a certain amount of prestige that way. So I think longevity and prestige is important. And I also think it's important to make sure that the, that the demand is always higher than the supply, because that's what keeps the growth going. As soon as you have more supply than you have demand, people like it loses energy somehow. What do you think about those thoughts? Yeah, I think that's spot on. So one thing I was going to bring up anyways, but you already mentioned it, which was that tournament that we have locally, which I have to assume you're talking about Seacoast, right? Yeah, we have a Seacoast Verani tournament. It's been running like over 30 years. Yeah, I think. Yeah, so- so this is an interesting thing. And this was like this, I mean, we can go results, LOL, but this proves my point exactly. So the, you know, and I want to make sure that I like clarify that when I'm talking about this, I'm not at all saying anything bad about it because the tournament's a great tournament. It's uh, like you said, it has a waiting list and it's, it's literally the only tournament you can go to every year and, and get a, a good, good size entry, good, you know, decent payout. It runs quickly and there's no handicaps in it. So it's kind of just like, the old school way that that pool used to be played. And, and that was, that's how it started. And that's how and for those. That, and I, and I have to point that out. So for those that don't know the Minneapolis pool scene, this tournament is a 32 man non-handicapped pool tournament with a, what's the entry fee now? Like $150 per person per event. There's an eight ball and a nine ball. Maybe it's more, maybe it's 200. I don't remember. All I know is, is that it's, it's a non-handicapped three figure entry with, an eight ball and a nine ball. And the thing fills every year with a waiting list. Whereas if you ran another pool tournament in Minnesota, that was non-handicapped, it would good luck. You know what I mean? It's like, if so, how come if somebody else wanted to run a 32 player tournament, they could, they couldn't even fill it up, but yet this place has a waiting list. And I think that the, the longevity and the prestige go a long way to that, but go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. I mean, nowadays, like, so I, well, I want to make a side point about it, but yes, there, it is about the prestige and like, and when people get uh, not invited for enough years and they, they can't find a way to get in by the time that they maybe can get in, they just feel obligated to get in. Even if they were, haven't been played a ton of pool because they know like, well, shoot, you know, like I wanted to play the last five years, but I had zero chance to get a shot. And now I finally got my phone call. So it's kind of like, you know, it, it's the, it is the supply and demand thing and the, the, you know, the longevity of the tournament. There's a lot of like, 
good social aspects of the reason why people want to be around there too. Um, so, so it has a lot going for it, but what I will say is this, there's a, I mean, you probably don't know about this, but so they, it used to be $110 entry back when, you know, you and I used to play together. And then I think the last time that you played, it was, it went up to $160 entry per event and, and that filled. And now he, I remember talking to the guy who runs it at a tournament about almost about a year ago now. And he asked me about, he's like, well, I was thinking about kicking up the entries next year. And he was talking about like, like 250 to $300 an event. And I know that I told him this. I said, Hey, like, I think you have a great thing. I don't think you should push it. I think that you should kind of keep up with inflation in a sense, but don't get too aggressive because you have to realize that again, that there has to be a certain sense of like, quote unquote, dead money. And that it's, it's dead money because it's affordable for people to play. And there are some, you know, sort of long shots that have made it through. Uh, not, I don't mean in a bad way because the, the tournament's set up that way where it's a short race, you know, race to five bar table, eight ball and valley tables. And then the, the nine balls race to seven and it's both, or I think the eight balls winter break rack your own. And then the, the nine balls actually rack for your opponent. So it, it throws a little, little twist in the game, but, um, but the, go figure like this year is the first year they bumped up the entry fees to 300. And last I heard they were looking for nine spots to be filled. And the tournament's literally uh, two weeks from today is when it starts. And and this is the first oh, year they've ever no. had that issue. And, and I mean, it's, again, it's easy for me to say it now. And, and I mean, I don't want to like, you know, like I said I, I don't want this to come off as like, ha ha, I told you so. Like I'm trying to like bash because I, I love the tournament. It's, you know, the guy that runs, it's great. He does a great job, but this is, this is literally a perfect example of, of how you can kind of take a really good thing and get a little bit, you know, to not, not, not greedy, but you, you want to make the thing a little bit too prestigious and, and too high value. And then, and then this is what happens. You kind of step over the line and, and now all of a sudden, you know, it's not going to work. And I, yeah, it's and hard I, for, it's hard for a player that can't win. Like back, okay, it it wasn't that long ago, Jesse. I mean, ten years ago, the entry fees were seventy five dollars in the eight ball and seventy five dollars in the nine ball. So somebody could come play. It was that. Yeah, yeah. So somebody could come play it for one hundred and fifty dollars. They could play both events and get a chance to play against you know the best players from Minnesota as well as you know surrounding areas. Right? We've had players yeah. from you know Illinois, let me, let me Canada. Take that back. Sorry. The the it went up to one ten an event, and then I do remember because it was a uh, it was two seventy total the last year I played, so one hundred and thirty five an event. Yeah, so, so it's like it went from seventy five to one thirty five, which means two seventy for per player per weekend, uh, which is still you know like you said that's just kind of keeping up with inflation, you know, to go from seventy five to one ten to one thirty five over over you know I've been playing that event for fifteen years, right? You know whatever it conflicts with Turning Stone, so I haven't played it the last few years. I've been anyway, so. But now, are you saying it went to three hundred per event? Exactly, it's three hundred. So now it's going to cost the player six hundred dollars to go play that, which it used to be one fifty, and then even last time it was two seventy. It over doubled, is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, and that's and I mean, in theory, it's a cool thing because you've had you know you've had this endless wait list, but you know, I I guess I I don't want to speak for the, the person that runs it or or whoever was all and decided you know in in raising this to three hundred. But I have to assume it's because you get to put like that there's going to be a $20,000 total purse on the, you know, on the flyer. And that looks amazing. But again, like you, you really have to do your due diligence. And I mean, I think before you would do that, I think the way to maybe handle that would have been to reach out to all the players specifically to say, hey, like this, these are the reasons why I would like to bump up the entry. Like, just be honest. I won't tell anybody you said yes or no, but would you be comfortable peeling off $600 in entry fees once a year for this tournament? And if there's enough people that say, well, 
you know, I mean, that seems like it's getting a little bit steep. I mean, usually I could kind of get out of that weekend for 300 bucks because I, you know, I buy some drinks or whatever, then that, that starts to really cost people. Like you said, there, there's, there are a certain level of players in that tournament that are going to support it because they've been in it nearly every year. And then, but there does come a point where people got to say, well, you know, now if next year, if, if the entry fees were a thousand per event, well, how much, how much are you willing to say that I support this event? You know, like you can't, you can't start losing a chunk of your income. That's like really going to hurt your life over a, a two day period, especially around the time where, you know, you're just getting done with the, the holidays where you presumably have to spend a ton of money on gifts and whatever have you, you know? So yeah, I just so, like, so just to be a little political, I want, I know we both know the player, the person that runs this. And I don't, like you said, I don't know the, uh, the de- decisions, uh, all the reasoning, but I hope it does fill. It's a great event. I'm sure there's other reasons. There's probably some things that, you know, you know, for all we know, it's like he might have had pre-commitments and then players backed out or for all we know, it's going to fill up and be the best event ever. And he pulled it off, you know, so I just I just I hope, you know, I hope it's a smashing success. And I'm not I just want to make it clear. I don't pretend to know what's going on or have, I'm not here to judge. So but but let's zooming out from that event. How can we take the principles of that derby and turning stone? What type of extrapolation general principles can you take from that? Well, yeah, you can. uh Again, like, I mean, let me just kind of tail that because I want to say the same thing, which is that, again, I'm not going to try to pretend like I know the exact reasons on why. I know that it's a ton of work to run those events. And I know it, you know, he probably has to put in a ton of money himself to kind of organize all that when you consider all this time and, and everything. So I, I'm by no means bashing it at all. I think it's great if it, if it works out and, and you can get a full field this year. I, I mean, that's awesome, you know. But um, I think that this is it just directly correlates with how the growth of pool would have to happen, which is you, you have to start at a small level where your, your confidence level is extremely high that you can create a, you know, a recurring event with a waiting list. Kind of like you, you said with, I mean, going to Josh with the supply and demand. Yes, that is a, that's a great thing. And I remember when he ran those, you know, those big table tournaments, which I, I didn't know if you were planning on mentioning that or not, but he had that same concept. And the idea is that if, in my opinion is that although it's great because it's big table pool, there's such a small player pool to begin with of players that could have played in that, that it makes it super tricky to fill, even with the supply and demand concept, you know, had he had that been a, a bar table eight ball tournament with a, let's just throw it a hypothetical here. Like something that I think would be good, which is you run a, a bar table eight ball tournament. That is uh, you, it's going to be 32 players and to get down to the final eight, it's just, it's just going to be a race to one. Okay. But before you do the draw, we're going to have a Calcutta and the entry fee is just going to be 50 bucks a piece. Okay. So literally race to one, you're going to leg for the break. And then that's it. You just want to get down to the final eight. Now we'll switch it and we'll go, uh, we'll just go race to three um, winter break or something. That's also kind of high variance in a sense that tournament to me, I think provides enough excitement and enough, you know, where the, the underdogs, can get paid off on their long shots when they, when they come through a little bit, that that's something that might create some, some buzz and kind of have a, you know, a recurring chance of success. Okay. But, so, yeah. so, so hang on, hold on, hold on. Because do you, you brought up like three things here. I'm, I'm like, I said, now's the part where I'm trying to catch up again. And I know that, that a lot of people just heard race to one and knee jerk here. So let's just, let me just slow it out. I'm going to let you keep going I'm right where okay. you were, but what we just, there's a couple things that, one big thing that you kind of hinted at that I was kind of thinking about was you have to start small 
limit demand or sorry, limit supply so that there's demand is always pushing the growth and gradually as you build longevity grow. And where I think a lot of people go wrong is they, a lot of people try to do the opposite, which is they try to hit a grand slam and they try to go big, 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 big. They try to do something so big that everybody in the pool world wants to be part of it. And that, and that it's the biggest, best thing ever done. And we saw that with, whether it's the IBT or with bonus ball or with anything that we could talk about, it seems like people just try to get really, really, really big, really fast. And as opposed to starting small, building longevity, building demand, and then gradually as the, as the demand just gets, you know, super heavy, just gradually expand to more events, gradually inflate the injury fees to where not losing the field. So that was the one thing I, I think is a really important idea. And now as an example of that, um, and of course, making sure the market's there, that's the other thing. So uh, Josh had run some big table events. We don't have big table players in Minnesota. So that's, yeah, they've been, they went extinct a long time ago, sad, sad to say. So, so what that leaves is you're talking about an event and we didn't really talk about handicaps yet. And we can, if you, you know, if that plays a role in this, but one thought that I've had Jesse is that there are two ways to handicap an event. You can use handicaps or you can change the format because the handicap, the goal, well, it, it depends on, so it depends on what the goal of a handicap, if the goal of a handicap was to make everybody exactly even money on every set, well, then there's only one fair way to do that. And that's to, let everybody just hit balls around for fun and raffle off prize money. But assuming that the goal of a handicap is to decrease the, you know, to decrease the dominance of the top players and to decrease the skill edge from the top players. Well, you can decrease the skill edge. So like if, for example, if I played a lower level player, turn a lower level player in a tournament, if it was big table, nine ball race to 11, maybe I win, you know, a hundred percent of the matches against a lower level player. Uh, but if we played, Big table nine ball race to five, maybe I win 90%. But if I play bar table eight ball race to five, maybe I win 80%. And then if I play that same player bar table eight ball race to one, maybe I win 60%. And all of a sudden they've got a 40% chance of beating me. So what you can, what you're, what, what for people that haven't really thought about this, you, instead of, instead of actually going to handicaps and saying, we're going to give people games on the wire and, and money balls and all this stuff. You can actually achieve what the handicap, a lot of handicap tournaments look to achieve, which is let the lower level players have chances, but you can achieve it without handicaps by, by going to high variance format. So when Jesse says high variance, that just means that it's very uh, unpredictable. There's a lot of, uh, it's very unpredictable. Uh, and so what you're saying is your hypothetical tournament, which would be, 32 players and the, and, and all the way to the money is just a race to one that that would be the way that the tournament is quote unquote handicapped. And the, and the, and the benefit of that is that you would always have uh, lower rated players that would be willing to take a shot because they know that all they have to do is win three games in a row and they're in the money or actually 16, eight, they only have to win two games to get in the money. So then there's high variance and it's exciting and it's pressure and they have a chance to beat two good players in a row and be in the money and things like that. Is that so? That's I just wanted to make sure that everybody was keeping up on the concepts of why you might propose something like that. Yeah, that's that's precisely the reason. I mean, and and I, I feel like I'm super qualified to say this because I mean, like with I mean, aside from maybe a couple other players, 
that are that are probably relatively in the same range of of skill on like bar table eight ball. Like I'm usually a heavy favorite in most of the tournaments that I play in that are close enough to an even race, you know. Even the the weekly tournaments that are like a race to to three and four, like you would be surprised when you're you know when you're actually dedicated to playing and not there to socialize and have fun, how often you can run through those fields when they're just those are pretty small races themselves. But unless you run into like the other top or player or maybe somebody that's capable of breaking and running three racks, then you're it's very very difficult for somebody to beat you. You have to play a pretty poor set. So for me, like. I just think that people who would hear the idea of playing a race to one and kind of like balk at it and say that that's ridiculous. What I would jump to right away is I would say, well, if you can be self-aware, my guess is the reason why you don't like that is because the, what you really want to hear is you want the format of the tournament to be designed in a way where you can be in my position. You can be in the position where you're a heavy favorite against all the players that are, that are lower than you. And, and also can be in a spot where, players like me now have been handicapped so much where you have a good chance to beat me when you do eventually draw me or other players that are, you know, like, let's say just above 700 Fargo or right around that rate, you know? So I, I just don't think that that's going to, I mean, it, it's good. Like I'll say there is good things from it. I mean, you look at like the MPA pool stuff that creates consistent events at pool rooms and that sort of thing. There's obviously other business reasons why that's important because longer races handicapped you get 100 to 130 people in a pool room for 12 hours that's great business for the pool rooms that's awesome like that there's a place for that and that and that's why those are i mean that's why those are not going away but i'm just saying that there there's other things you can do and and what we're talking about is the growth of pool and trying to bridge the gap from you know that level of play to players who are just kind of like ball bangers trying to get good and maybe get like to a, what we have for the rating systems here up to like a B or maybe an A player to what happens when you want to get serious and you, is there like any reason to want to be a double A and a master? And then like, where do you go from there aside from just saving up your, your money for, a, you know, three months and then heading out to one pro tournament and just saying, ah, oh, that was a great experience. That's well, the okay. part that I'm talking about. So, so, okay. I, I find this interesting because we have talked about this before and I actually don't remember. I remember talking about high variance and the, there are a lot of benefits to high variance is that it works. For, see, handicaps work for lower level players, but the top, the better players don't like them, which you could, we could argue about the pros and cons of those. And like you said, there are no pros, ha ha ha. But, but then the open events work for the top players, but not for the lower rated players. So, so, so getting events that have high variance in terms of format is a very, I agree that that's a good strategy. And I think that actually the Predator Tour, where they have the two races to four, followed by a tiebreaker shootout, uh, I think that that's why they've gone that way. That's why the Moscone Cup is race to five. That's why uh, there's a lot of events that are starting to say, okay, I think maybe without really, you know, I'm sure they understand this as well as we do. I mean, but there, there are other people that are trying to find a way to keep a more exciting format. And that excitement is not just good for the players and for the lower rated players. It's also good for the audience, which then in turn is good for ticket sales and sponsors. So it's great. It's kind of a win for everyone. But race to one is pretty extreme. Like, why am I going to like you're not going to have people driving down from three hours out of town to go play a race to one? Uh, You know, I mean, to go to go play a race to one tournament, lose the leg and get run out on how many, you know, is that really? I don't know that I'd go to that, Jesse. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. And I, and I'm not saying that that's the exact answer. I did that to be like a very extreme concept of. So that was a, that was a toy carry. game. Okay. So that's a toy game. That's a theoretical. That's not his recommendation. Everybody that's a toy. <clears throat> that's like a model 
of a, of a principle of high variance. Okay. So what would be a reasonable model? What do you think of the predator format? I, yeah, I think the predator format's good, but, but let me go back to it though. Like I, I'm also not saying that that exact format is horrible for our area, because if you look at like what the market has to offer in, in our state, how many players can you, I mean, we don't actually start naming people off because it's not what we're here to do, but how many players do you think want to come play even like when you you would argue that you're not like a complete expert at bar table eight ball, but you're one known as one of the the better players. So you're for sure always floating in the in the top like four players or something like that, right? I mean, you'd probably agree there. If you're, I, I don't know, maybe you disagree, but I, I think you're you're for sure in that range, like long term. So how many players do you think want to come play you consistently? Races to five, uh, alternate the break, just even up bar table eight ball. Like how many people will do that and, and pay a, a large enough entry that it makes it worth it for you to sit at a pool room all day? Because if people will do that for a $10 entry, of course, because they, they just want to do it and they're like, oh, I'll just go have some fun and play pool. But then you don't get, get involved in that because it's a waste of your time. And it's same for me. Like I don't, I don't play weekly tournaments because they've progressively gone down in, in entry fee or, or like the prize money and they take forever. And then it's like, what, like I'm not really there just to go hang out with friends every single week. That's not really how I want to spend my time. So, so, so to give an example, like we have weekly tournaments in our area that, um, you know, it used to be, I remember that you could play a weekly tournament. And if you won the thing, first place would generally be a hundred dollars or more, you know, low hundred, something like that. Just, you know, you buy in for 10, 15 bucks. And if you win, you might end up, you know, a hundred dollar winner for the night, you know, but, but as the what's there's other ways of attracting lower rated players. And another way that we didn't talk about is lowering the entry fees. Uh, and so that's what you're talking about is the entry fees of these non in these weeklies have gotten to the point where first places are now double digit prize money. And if you buy in for 15 and first place is 70, it's hard to like want to play for eight hours. You know, it's you, if you want to practice, you can practice, but to call it anything besides practice starts, you know, it's, it's no longer really a, a, a tournament. It's more of a practice session. So that's that, but in terms of like increasing turnout, that's another way to do it that we didn't really talk about is you could, you, you could either lower entry fees or you could even have tiered entry fees. So just as far as like different strategies. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. There's, there's definitely a, a balance there, right? And it's finding that that's what I'm talking about though. Is like, you have to reverse engineer that and find out where the healthy balance is. And I, and I think that historically like promoters and pool have done an extremely poor job of that. And I, and I believe it's because they, their reality is blinded by the shiny lights of, of running these big events or having these big ideas. And again, like I, I know this probably sounds semi-negative, so I'm not trying to say that there's no promoters that have done it right because a lot of people have ran successful tours. They have, they've kind of found what works in their market, in their area, and it's a success and that's great. But that's, if you want to grow a pool, you have to continue to do that. More people have to do that. And then you have to, you know, but, but for that people have to want to, to help pool and, and want to put in that effort. So I, I'm not saying it's an easy fix. I just think it, when it comes down to it, it's a pretty logical concept of, of how to start bridging gaps. And, and I don't think it's either impossible or people are just not, not thinking that way and not really willing to, to, to give that a try. So, and one, one thing that was kind of nagging on me too, is, you know, we were just talking about Seiko Varani's and how they had the waiting list for 30 years and, you know, how prestigious it is. So that is race to five, no handicap and the eight ball. And so people would come and play me and you for that uh, and, and whoever else signs up. And so why, you know, so, but I, I think I already kind of see the answer to that. It's like, 
why, I mean, the model, you could sit there and say, well, that model worked. So why don't they just do more of it? But, but it's the same thing as in a way, if they had, if the SECO event went to twice a year, it would be the same thing as if they doubled the entry, which is now is the second one as prestigious or can people afford to go to both? And if they have too many of them, it's still, it's just the, uh, you increase the demand or you increase the supply too much. And now there's not enough demand to sustain. So like, at what point, it's kind of the same question, at what point do they raise their entry to where it doesn't fill? How many tournaments like that can they run in Minnesota? If they just run one a year and all the Minnesota players want to be a part of it because it's the place to be versus if they try to run, if they try to build it into a tour, it would be, I mean, I don't know that they're going to be able to create enough demand in Minnesota for that many open players, for that much dead money to want to go to, you know, four or five, six events a year like that. So do you think that we have the demand to build an open tour or do you think that it's already kind of been proven that the only reason it works is because it's a one-off? Yeah, that that's what I think. It's just a one-off thing. It, it, I don't think it can work at this point because you you would be hopping into a market to directly compete with something that already gives players a an, an easier option, an easier barrier of entry. Why would somebody come and play guy you and I and the other handful of top players in an even races to to six or seven when they can literally choose a tournament that they can go play in their handicapped tier? for the same entry, get a, a better chance to win. It's a, you know, it has a good track record. They have a lot of uh, other perks that come along with playing with those. I mean, a lot of those tournaments are at casinos on the weekends. I mean, no, not a lot, but you know, there's a handful of year that are, that kind of are, are sort of fun get togethers there where they get to have their team events and their singles. And, and that's what those are designed to do. They're designed to be entertaining. They're designed to like bring in enough people. So it's a, it's a good business move for the pool rooms, for the casinos, for the promoter. And it's just like they've just found a good a good product there. Like that's that's great. And Seiko's works because you know it, it's been around forever. And like I said, there, there is that sense of supply and demand. I mean, there's so much buzz around that tournament that people, you know, people feel like they're missing out by not being able to play in it. And then they want to go hang out around there. And it's like, yeah, it's just it just works. There's a bunch of reasons why that tournament works. Okay, so. So, Jesse, we've got pool with matchroom at the highest level, taking care of the top, top players. You know, most most cities have some type of local pool, whether it's leagues and, you know, some local tournaments and some handicapped events. So what do you feel like? I think what's missing is the bridge and the and the, and the gap between. So if you're not a low-level league player or a medium-level league player or you're not a top touring pro, you know, so, you know, maybe, you know, once you get to 6, 650, there's nothing. It's a really, you know, I've, everybody thinks they're at the gap. The players at 590 think they're at the gap. The players at 640 think they're at the gap. You and I feel like we're at the gap, but there does seem to be a gap of advanced, you know, good local tournament players and, and even regional tournament players and semi-pro players. There's like a gap between, you know, when you kind of grow out of the league system to when you can actually compete with international players. And is that, is that where you feel that that pool growth needs to occur? It's just kind of in that, in that void. Yeah, of course. I mean, so then, so then to grow that, it seems like you need like something like there's local pool and there's international pool. It seems like what's missing is regional. Isn't that kind of where you feel like it's missing is like the regional or national scene? Yeah, but, but I would say specifically organized regional slash national. I mean, you look at, uh, so the, like the league systems, right? Like APA, look what they've done, right? They've built a giant league. And that thing has no prayer of running out of business. They continue to grow as far as I, I think. I mean, I, I guess I haven't checked the numbers, but they, 
they have like specific, you know, stipulations in place where once you get too high of a rating, then you have to be kicked off a team and then you have to find new members. And it's, it's like, it's got a built in guaranteed expansion, you know, clause to it. Basically you've got, you've got to sign up two players and then they got to sign up two players. Otherwise. Yeah. 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 It's like a big Ponzi. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. 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 But so, so on the, like the regional level, it's like, where do you go from, from being the, the dominant regional player? Like, and, and I know I've, I've been there to then where all of a sudden to go to that next level or like to experience that you have to shell out like 15 K in travel expenses to go play, you know, seven, eight events in a year and then see what happens. Well, like only one out of, you know, 10 guys like me that go to do that are going to have probably a, a reasonable year where they, they pro you know, I mean, well, you see the guys that have done it, right? Like, I mean, Skyler came out pretty good and obviously he's a top player in, in the States now, but like, you know, there, there's other guys that are like around the 750 to up, upwards of like 775 Fargo rate that are, in my opinion, in that gray area where they can, they're going to be dominant if they play regional tournaments with only one or two other professionals, but then like they can't quite break through that next area to just, you know, be, uh, be dominant and just be able to kind of leave behind the, the tier behind. So, it, so it kind of creates this like imbalance where that, then the next step down is just like a bunch of dominant professionals who make it not worth, you know, players traveling and spending six, $700 to go a couple States over to play in a tournament because there's not enough demand. I mean, you see what I'm saying? It's, it's kind of a trickle down thing. So, so in order to build that up, in my opinion, it would be, again, my extreme example of the race to one, probably not great, but, but I think you have to figure out where, like where the most amount of players are that are just above, let's say Fargo rate 650 to like 720, right? Like that, there is a lot of players in that range. And how do you most efficiently organize that across the country where it'll pool the money and make it to where you know, the percentage of those players go on to like whatever it's quarterly events that slowly get built up. Not, not somebody trying to create this, this brand new pro tour that that's too fast. It doesn't give people time to like catch on and, and things, you know, pick up there. There's just a missing level there. And, and I understand that that's not super, uh, it's not super like, I guess, enticing to, to the big promoters because they don't really need that. Right. They, they can do what they need to do. Like Matchroom does Moscone cup. They do, world cup of pool and, and the bigger events because they already know those are going to be a success. Like why dabble into something that they don't really need to. Right. Yeah. So, so you, I don't know, maybe I'm making sense. Maybe I'm not, but I just think that that's, and maybe people are trying to do it. Maybe people have, you know, put in their effort and, and they just can't figure out the formula, but that's kind of my, my idea of it. So, so, so what about the, uh, you know, the NBL? Okay. They just ran an event and I know Nate, is a a big fan, and so our podcast is, you know, I mean, I you know what I'm talking about. The I okay, so I'm going to tell people where I stand. Uh, I did not participate. So the NBL is the National Billiards League, and they've here's so here's this actually why I haven't participated in that is a great reason uh, that talks about the 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 power of longevity. I already kind of knew which tournaments I was going to play this year. Like I know that I'm playing, you know, turning stone and Derby, and then I'm, I'm hoping to get to the super billiard expo pro event. And then after that, I'm going to kind of see what, what comes up. Uh, I'm bummed. I can't get to any of the predator ones, which stinks, uh, but I can only fire so many shells. You know, I got to teach, I got to teach, but, um, but so when the NBL stuff came out, I was just like, I don't know, man, I don't know how those are going to go. I don't know who's going to participate. I don't know. Um, 
you know, I don't, I just, it's kind of like, it hasn't been established in my mind as one of the tournaments. I've only got a few shells I can fire. So that was not on my, on my hit list. And so if that thing starts going year after year after year, and all of a sudden it's like, man, that thing's awesome. Why am I not at that? Like, that's when, you know, that's where you got to get it to. You got to get it to like, why am I not there? And, and when it's the first year, it's hard for me to feel, why am I not there? The other reason, by the way, that, that just for me personally, uh, was that they had like, they had like a, a, a line drawn and you mentioned 720 Fargo and that's where the line was drawn. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> Anybody above the 720 mark was in the pro and you had to like pay like, you know, it's like a thousand dollar. Anybody below that could like play like an amateur qualifier. There was like something, there was, I forget what it is. Cause I, because like, I wasn't really participating, so I didn't pay super, super close attention. But if I was below 720, I could maybe play a qualifier and win my way in. But if I'm over 720, I got to come out of pocket for a thousand. And so for the problem for me was I'm, I'm only a little over 720. So therefore I was kind of in the dead money side of all the players. I, you know what I mean? It just, it was just like, I was still, I was still kind of in the wrong spot. So anyway, I'm not, I hope it, you know, it sounds like it was really successful. They just had their first event. Um, did you know much about that or what do you know about the NBL? And what Yeah. The I, I remember seeing it on uh pop up on easy billiards, like when it was, you know, being talked about like probably a couple of years ago now, maybe a year and a half or something, but yeah, I got delayed with COVID, but I think one of the keys to it, Jesse, is that, I mean, they do have, uh, they do have a plan so that they have pros that can play and hopefully be positive EV because then they're playing against some lower, you know, some top amateurs that have qualified into the event. So they have like amateur, you know, like 720 and under, events for like good 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 amateurs top amateurs where they top amateurs can play and then qualify to play with the pros and have a shot well the pros have to pay their way in i don't know i mean so i don't so basically it's an idea to try to get like you're saying to try to get some quote-unquote dead money into some pro fields so they can have sustainable pro events um well at the same time also providing an opportunity for amateurs to win the top, you know, amateur events. And I, I don't know if it's just entry fee or if there's other payouts as well that they could get by being in part of that lower tier division, uh, but they could win the qualifier. So they have an opportunity to compete and win and then earn their way up as well. You know? Yeah. Yep. And I, I would say, I remember seeing that same thing when I saw the cutoff of like who could and who couldn't uh, qualify in, that was sort of it for me too, because I was like, well, I'm not active. I don't, I don't, I mean, what's, why would I want to like, for me personally, like, why would I want to pay a thousand to go play here? If I'm just going to peel off a thousand to go play a big tournament, I would rather just go to the U S open or, or one of those bigger tournaments. Right. Um, but that's okay because I'm not saying that's anything bad about the NBL. I think if, you know, I I don't know all the details of it, but from the sounds of it, it it seems like a great thing. And like you said, it's a step in the right direction of bridging that gap. And to honestly, to, to clarify, like, I don't think that bridging that gap is to cater to players who play you and like at the speed of you and I do, I, I think we're the last people to be concerned about. And I think th- that's totally just the only way it can work. You have to move from the bottom up. And then, because otherwise, you know, when you let players like us in, I mean, there's, there's maybe what 50 to 75 players who probably play within like, I don't know, let's say like within like 20 points below us in Fargo, is that probably safe to say somewhere in that range in the, in the, in the United States. And like, I I mean I don't I guess I haven't looked at the list in a while but just my assumption is that there's probably about that many players that could potentially be you know wanting to hop in that tournament and and you need 
you you need to have like the bottom 80% of whatever field you're trying to build. You need to make sure that that like that the market has maybe 10 to 20 X times that in players. So starting at around our, our, uh, our skill level and trying to bridge the gap there, it's just not going to work. It's going to crash and burn like everything else. But there is a point where that threshold starts to get like where you can kind of creep up. So if it's, if pool, I mean, you said it's 720. So maybe, maybe they're getting a great turnout and over five years, the, the amount of like demand for that tournament goes up from like a, a revolving, let's say 250 players, just for example, up to now all of a sudden there's 700 players that, that are kind of revolving and, and trying to qualify and doing that. Well, that that's a good step in the right direction. And then assuming that that happens, you, that that's where you just, you, you can't get too, too, too far ahead. You know, like don't, don't put the, the card in front of the horse here. That's where you just start to creep up a little bit, whether that be slightly with entry fees, slightly with the, you know, the, the levels that can qualify in or, or you, you just make minor adjustments and you just, or that slightly way, with the number of events. Yeah, exactly. That way your, your downside, your exposure to that is never really going to damage your business model to the point where you're like, wow, like that was a dumb risk to take. And that, that's what, that's kind of the whole point I was trying to make earlier when I, you know, when I was talking about, for instance, like Seiko's or other events that have, you know, made drastic changes like that. It, I mean, it's just not, it's not a huge, I mean, it's just not smart in my opinion, like the yeah. U S open, right? Like yeah. just one more example is the U S open. I remember there's a huge difference from when you and I first were out there the first year we played. I think that was back in 2010. That was, I think that was the first time I played it. And that tournament, if that were run the same exact way today, in my opinion would be like still, I mean, pretty good because there's like, there has been a lot more people that come in to play pool and keeping that entry fee low enough and cheap enough to where, or like the travel expense is cheap enough to stay around there. The, I mean, there was a lot of demand for that. There was always getting close to like over 200 players. That's crazy. 200 players are one to put in $500 in a race to 11 tournament. It's, it's for prestige. Right. And then they change it to 120 to a thousand dollar entry. Well, now you have, now you have uh 50% of the field. That's like guys that are coming from all the different European countries that are quote unquote, maybe the next big thing. How long is it before, you know, 40% of those guys just get knocked off the radar because they realize they can't quite cut it. Well, now what? Now you've, you've ruined uh 80%, you know, you've, you've kicked out the 80% that was supporting your business and now you have to start from scratch again. So that's okay, just my so, cool, man. Okay. So I want to go back to the NBL for a couple of reasons. One is I think it's it's interesting to talk about the principles involved here as it pertains to this event. And secondly, uh, we're just talking. These guys are doing something. And if we can help them, you know, if, if we have good things to say about it, uh, that can only help. And so what they did is, I have it here in front of me. They had eight amateurs and eight pros. So eight pros that paid $1,000 and eight amateurs that qualified by paying $100 to play in a, in a regional qualifier, or a local qualifier. So then they end up with 16 players, and they had $25,000 in prize money. Now, obviously, $25,000 is more than $16,000 entries, so I don't know all the ins and outs if they had sponsorship for money added, uh, or, you know, or what I'm assuming. So $25,000. So it paid $10,000 for first, 7,000 for second. And then the cool part is it paid through fifth place. It paid a thousand for fifth and sixth. So what that means is that the top third of the field cash, because they have 16 players, normally you would pay out top four, but they're actually paying out top six. Okay. The way they did it 
so right away, you've got eight amateurs and eight pros. So the benefit to being a pro is that you're playing in a $10,000 first event with top five, you know, top six spots, play, you know, top third of the field pays. You win your money back if you tape top six, top third of the field, and then you have a chance to win 10 grand or seven grand for second. So it's like you got a chance to get paid. You're only playing against seven other pros plus eight amateurs, short, small field, good money up on top. So that's the benefit to signing up for a pro. The benefit of signing up for an amateur is you get to qualify for $100, you win a qualifier, and all of a sudden, all you've got to do is win a couple matches, and you have a chance of beating a couple top players and literally making thousands of dollars. Uh, the cool thing is the format, the winner side, it starts as a race to seven, the first round. It, after the first round, it's race to 11 on the winner side. But the loser side remains a race to seven. So, a top, you know, if you're an amateur, you might draw an amateur first round, be in the final eight, maybe you lose to a pro, and then all you got to do is win a race to seven on the B side. You're already won $1,000. You get a chance to make a run and playing races to seven. So it's like, what do you think? Of, I mean, that sounds, I mean, I think based on what we've talked about, you've got a format to where you've kind of got a tiered entry in the sense that the lower rated players can win a qualifier. You've got a format where it goes to race to seven, which is reasonably high variance compared to the alternatives. Uh, you've got money added. You've got prestige. It seems like a good format. What do you think of that? Yeah. I mean, everything you just said uh, sounds pretty good to me. You know, I, like I said, I, I don't know all the the exact details to that league or, or whatever. It's not league, um, the tour, you know. So whatever whatever the exact details are, I mean, everything you just summarized sounds pretty good to me. I mean, I, I don't know what, what parts of that are, are working better than others, but if they're able to, to put together a tournament like that, then they, they can't be doing too much wrong, right? No, it's, it's really cool. So that's one that I'll, I'll keep on my radar because it definitely has a lot of the things we said. It's starting reasonably sized. It's not shooting for anything ridiculously out of scale. They did fill the thing up, so they didn't have a problem. They didn't have a problem with, you know, making the supply too big for the demand. And, uh, and hopefully, as these things start happening more and more, you know, I'd love it if it got to the point where I started getting mad, like, man, what do I got to do to get into that thing? Uh, so we'll see, you know, hopefully it continues to be a great event. And so, uh, but, but I think what, but I think when it comes to, if what, if we had to start like recapping what we've talked about, uh, I would say that it's a lot of like, what are the do's and don'ts? And I think the don'ts are, you don't want to crush the dead money by, by killing their chances of participating or making it too financially painful for them to participate. Uh, so you want reasonable entry fees and reasonable uh, reasonable races to where they have chances. Uh, you, you don't want to kill the top players or the prestige by, you know, so anyway, we talked about some of the do's and don'ts. Is there, and then we talked about like kind of where, where you'd aim it as far as what, what the demand is. And I think this hits a lot of them. What else did you have on your mind? Was there anything else you wanted to kind of go into or? I mean, as far as that topic goes, I think it, I pretty much covered everything. You know, you, you could explain things a different way, but the main concept, like you said, is, is essentially just finding out what, like what you have to work with in your market, whatever your end goal is, and what gives you the highest uh, percentage of success to keep the most amount of people interested in coming back. And then yeah, if, you, yeah. if you do that instead of worrying about your end goal, then something good will come out of it. You might not have a, a, three events a year adding 50K, but you also might have five events a year where it's 10,000 for first, kind of like these, you know, and there's people that are like, lick your face happy to come back. 
pay a hundred dollars and be like, wow, I, I want that story. I, I watched that guy because I think I saw didn't John Mora win that? I be, you know what? I'm not gonna even confirm because I I've got it. I thought that's what I saw somewhere. I, I but anyways, it, whether it's probably it on the I'll go to the AZ Billiards homepage right now. It's probably on the homepage. Okay. Uh, John Morrow wins six on the loss side. Double dips duel in NBL inaugurable championship. There you go. All right. Yeah. So, you know, that that's awesome. And, and I'm whoever, I don't know who beat him on the winner's side, but I'm, I'm sure in that event, at one point, one of those amateurs had to either have a super close set or actually beat one of the, the players that they're really not expected to beat on paper. And that that's enough, you know, like that's, that's enough to be, get people jealous and want to want that story for themselves, especially when they, you know, that was a player that they've just beaten the last like five times they played. Right. So that it's just the, the trickle down effect works, but you, you just can't push things too fast. That's my, uh, yeah. And I think that's the big thing is that, is that you've got to, you've got to start small and grow from the ground up as opposed to try to swing for the fences and, and, and make it happen for the top down. And that match room is great. And you know what? I'm not saying that Matt, you know, I, I was a little skeptical that it's going to, you know, impact me anytime real soon, what match room is doing. Uh, but I, you know, I do think that there's some demand for like people taking care of, I'm glad that there's a company out there that's taking care of the international players and creating events for us to watch and, and that are prestigious and well-run. Uh, and there is probably some trickle down, but I think that for anything to affect the majority of players, I, I'm with you. It has to start small, grow slow from the ground up with longevity with, and, and with steady, careful growth as opposed to, you know, trying to get too big, too fast. So I think we're on the same page. I think we covered that pretty well. Um, so I think I'm good, Jesse. I appreciate you talking about it. I think, uh, I think it's an interesting uh, landscape and uh, I I'm, yeah. So I think I'm set. Is there anything else that you had on the docket or should we call this a wrap and get back to our pool practice? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good, man. I think, uh, I think we've carried on long enough. I'm sure some people are falling asleep over there. So we'll just, we'll leave it at that. All right. Well, listen, thanks for tuning in everybody. We'd love to hear your thoughts uh, and uh, we'll uh, catch you next time. All right. See you guys. Take care.